0: Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Keolu Fox. Keolu is an assistant professor at UCSD with a fascinating mix of interests. He's a native Hawaiian and got his PhD in genome sciences from the University of Washington. He's now taking that mix of life experience and hardcore scientific training, and putting it to work on projects that sequence the DNA of traditionally overlooked indigenous populations. Doing this work has led him into the disciplines of anthropology, data science, global health, and of course, genomics. And like many young scientists, Kyolu is thinking about impact, and not strictly in the traditional sense through academic publications. Kyolu is committed to advancing scientific knowledge of genomics and medicine but doing it in a way that isn't exploitive, that is mutually beneficial, and that builds trust with indigenous populations. I've known Kyolu since he was a graduate student and it's really been fun to see his career take off and go in this direction. He's a fun guy to talk to and we had some unvarnished and candid moments in this conversation about his life journey and his current work. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP-certified solutions designed for the life sciences industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as... Integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, and as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com/Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook "Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations." Again, that's answerthink.com slash Timmerman. And Thermo Fisher Scientific. I had seen you several times before in textbooks, but seeing you with my own eyes was a whole different story. You were breathtaking. This is an excerpt from a love letter written by Marietta to her cells. One of several incredible love letters written by amazing research scientists to give us a glimpse into the wonderment the beauty, and the challenges of cell research. Join us as we continue this exploration of a connection like no other, part of the Love Your Cells campaign. Watch Marietta read her incredible love letter at thermalfisher.com slash gibco love your cells. All one word. I'll say that again. Thermalfisher.com slash gibco love your cells. Now, please join me and Kyolu Fox on The Long Run.
1: Kiolu Fox, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you for having me, Luke. It's It's been a long time.
0: It sure has. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Kiolu, because um, I, I remember meeting you. This would have been several years ago when you were a graduate student at University of Washington Genome Sciences. And and I think you showed up at a few of the Xconomy events, maybe some of the early Timmerman Report events that I did. And I just remember, you know, you stood out in the crowd. You're this tall, curly-haired guy, really likes genomics, uh, (laughs) wearing a Hawaiian shirt. (laughs) Who is this guy? Uh, And, uh, you know, it's just been super cool to see your career take off um, as – as a genome scientist there at uc san diego so i'm r- r- really really excited to hear about what your uh, how you've gotten on this track and and where it's leading
1: yeah um first of all thank you for having me on here it's such an honor and it is so cool to just think about how long i've known you since i was really little uh especially in the sense of of uh being in the kind of Seattle genomic scene, which I think is super underrated, by the way, I think I think people are starting to get the picture. You know, it's like the the uh, Manny Pacquiao, the pound for pound best uh, kind of ecosystem for any type of innovation in genomics. And I'm really lucky that I ended up there, um, which was kind of a decision more made around snowboarding and Jimi Hendrix and Kirk Cobain. But what you know, what can you do? <laughs> But, uh, These
0: are good reasons to come to Seattle.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, but yeah, I mean, kind of a, a initially uh, there were some really key technologies that were, that were being developed when I, when I came there, namely exome sequencing, and there was a kind of a handful of people, a group of people that were really innovating. Obviously, well,
0: hey, the, hey, hey, uh, Keila. Oh, before we yeah. get into all of that stuff, let's just start mm-hmm. off a little bit about you. Uh, okay. Tell the listeners, like, who you are and where you come from you're, you're native hawaiian is that right
1: that's right that's right yes i am native hawaiian i'm actually the first native hawaiian to receive a phd in genome sciences my mooku auhau or genealogy extends to the big island of hawaii and specifically an ahuwa or subregion called kohala north kohala and a valley there called pololu Then from there, my family moved to Hilo. They were involved in a lot of the kind of uh, exchange of land, whether it's legal or illegal because of sugarcane. moving to Kaneohe. And then from Kaneohe to uh, all over the world I live now. So I've lived in, oh man, uh, the East Coast. I've lived in Washington, California, Alaska, Japan.
0: Okay, but yeah. as a kid um, mm-hmm. growing up on the Big Island, uh, yeah, what did you what did your mom and dad do for a living?
1: Yeah, so my, uh, my mom is is very much interested in data and computer science. My parents met at Georgetown University, and she was probably one of the I don't know how many Native Hawaiians ended up at at Georgetown. Um, and in Hawaii. We come from a specific community and culture called the Paniolo community. So that's people that are of a lot of the time Hawaiian and Portuguese. And that uh, community actually came from Madeira and they were involved in a lot of woodworking stuff and Paniolos are cowboys. So there's a lot of ranching and agriculture that goes on on the big island. And I think as a kid growing up in a place that is very much one of the most biologically diverse on the planet. I mean, we have 11 out of, I think, 13 biomes on planet earth and some of the steepest gradients in, in ecological diversity in the world. It's hard not to think about natural selection and make comparisons and understand in 45 minutes, you could be snowboarding on top of Mauna Kea and then, and then surfing without a wetsuit. So you get, you get a really, really interesting picture Also, so
0: as a as a kid, there's a lot of nature to just marvel at and wonder about. So you're kind of like a natural, an intuitive natural scientist, like kids are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And man, I mean, I grew up on on uh, orchid orchards and all types of exposed to botany and animal husbandry and helping out with. uh, Various things within ranching, fishing communities. I mean, you get exposed to a lot of nature and a lot of life uh, through the reef, deep ocean. Um, It's also interesting, too, because like even at a young age, you know, you start to see the influence of invasive species and other things like this and extinction events. And I think that has a profound impact on people, whether they know it or not.
0: Now, the community that you were in, was it primarily indigenous peoples or were there some, you know, uh, white folks and other Americans uh, sprinkled into your school or your community?
1: Yeah, Hawaii is a super diverse place. I don't think that people recognize that it has the highest percentage of mixed race or mixed ancestry, mixed ethnicity people in the U.S. So we have a lot of diversity. We have a lot of Hawaiian people everywhere. The Big Island is very different than Oahu. I think the majority of the population uh, of people, period, live in Honolulu, but the majority of Hawaiian people live in the outer islands, um, places like Molokai, Big Island, uh, etc. So, so yeah, I mean, and Hilo, where my mom and, and went to elementary school, and and where kind of our our roots are. That is a really, really important place for our culture. When we talk about the language and the revitalization and renaissance in, in Hawaiian language, or we talk about hula, it's the epicenter for dance and movement and, and our culture in a lot of different ways. And it's a really sleepy town, actually, with maybe 40,000 people or something like that. But it's uh, a very important place for our culture.
0: So you grew up with this. This sounds like it was very much instilled. This native culture. It it wasn't something, you know, that was tried to people tried to assimilate it away. I mean, you grew up as a part of this.
1: Yeah, I grew up. I grew up as a part of that culture, and I also grew up. as a part of our kind of diaspora culture as well. So I would be going and moving kind of back and forth between those things, which is a very Hawaiian and Pacific Islander thing to do. I think traditionally, probably thousands of years ago, our culture traveled and voyaged a lot more than we do now. And, but even if I would see and stay at my aunt's house in Alaska, we had a Hawaiian home there. We, you know, used the Hawaiian language and talked about Hawaiian stories. Any Hawaiian family that was in Anchorage was at our house for Sunday dinner. Um and and that's just we were magnets for that, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and so you 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 interact easily. You move among groups. It sounds like you know there's some famous people who have you know come up this way. Barack Obama, Jennifer yeah. Doudna, just to name yeah. a couple that people mm-hmm. people know. And part of what made them successful was that ability to like empathize to see other people uh, around them living differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it just gives you an appreciation for other people, people's culture at a young age too. Like, especially in a place like Hawaii that's so diverse. You know, you got so much variation in the types of food, and the types of music, and the languages, and the way people look, and um, our just how dynamic and diverse our our, our culture is. And then when you go to other places to visit, you bring that Aloha with you, but you also make those comparisons, I think, and you learn about those things. It's kind of like a machine learning algorithm a little bit because you're, you're exposed to all these n- new places and it becomes uh, those experiences and that experiential knowledge becomes a part of you. So you recognize those patterns. And uh, a lot of the terms we use are like, you, you code switch easily. It's, it's kind of effortless for a lot of people, especially for somebody like um, the two Nobel laureates that you just named.
0: Interesting, okay, so uh, this is life education, I guess you could call it. How about your formal education? What kind of school did you go to and, and what
1: kind of student were you? Oh, I was a terrible student initially. Um, I went to, for undergrad, I actually attended the University of Maryland. And man, I had some really interesting experiences there. When I was there, my first semester, I believe I had 1.1 GPA, which is really hard to do. I want <laughs> many students wait. listening like you got to try really hard to get a 1.1. And I was just going hog wild, having fun. But I think. That, well, but
0: wait, so, that, so why did you go to the University of Maryland? What did you think you were going to? I mean, that's a long way from Hawaii, long way from home.
1: Yeah, it is. I ended up going to my, part of my high school in the Maryland area at a, a special science and technology school called Eleanor Roosevelt High School. This is where Sergey Brin went to school. So if I'm honest about my education, there were these serendipitous moments where you're exposed to things and maybe you take it for granted. So something like coding. Um, we, we learned about this very early or science and technology classes there. So we, we had moved over there for high school.
0: Okay. And okay. So you're in, you're in Maryland and it's this, was this a private school? Did you have to like get a scholarship? To, did you qualify to get in here or or what, how, how'd that happen?
1: Yeah. So it's a magnet school and they have a, a, a series of tests and examinations uh, to be a part of this science and technology magnet program. And they had a lot of awesome resources. Um, the like research practicum project at the end of the year, the the potential to have all these internships at the Smithsonian and the zoo and the NIH. And it, some people were working with the FBI, uh, things like this it was a I re- I think it's a really, really unique school and it had about 4,000 people. So we were really good at sports and I played, you know, soccer and lacrosse really well. And I had intended to play at the university of Maryland. Um, I mean but my grades ended up being like I said really really terrible so that didn't didn't work out very well
0: grades at the University of Maryland like y- y- you got out of high school and decided you're going to party have some fun exercise your
1: independence absolutely absolutely to the max okay. to the max okay. <laughs> um but uh but it's interesting actually on the back end of that I met some really really important mentors that kind of re reshaped my commitment to to scholarship and biology and anthropology and archaeology and all of these really interesting um questions you know i don't think that i i actually cared up until that point when when everything was almost taken away and so i had awesome mentors i had uh, mark leone who's a really well-known kind of kind of post-Marxist archeologist. And he got me really thinking about questions around equality, equity, how we interpret data and how that kind of repatriates people's identities in the past, which is really important for genomics, although I hadn't connected that yet. And I worked with him on a few archeological field schools. And that really changed my whole perspective because I saw how powerful science is um, and how powerful it is to think about the deep past in that way. And then another Two kind of mentors. Uh, one was Fatima Jackson. Um, she really taught me about ethics and human genetic variation and human biology and genomics. And then I took uh, some classes with Mary Gonder and Sarah Tishkoff. So Sarah was at University of Maryland and then went to UPenn. But she had created coursework around human conservation genomics and primate uh, genomics and after those classes i was i was hooked i had okay. kind of put things together and i was i was committed and i got this i got the opportunity to work on this uh, honors thesis project with with uh like a startup in herndon virginia called biotraces and it was a triple negative breast cancer project focusing on african-american women and we were doing a lot of community-based research, like going to and having these mini med schools and interacting with the patients. And they, the phlebotomist was there collecting DNA, like real point of care style. And I was like, this is the future. I remember we brought in this big ass centrifuge, like I'm talking like this big and we had brought it in, and I had to bring it in. I was like, this thing's heavy as hell. But now you're just seeing the miniaturization of a lot of those uh, tools. So. Pretty cool.
0: Now, what years are we talking here when you really got the bug for both um, genomics Mm. and studying of the the deep past and diverse populations?
1: It's probably like 2006 to 2008 is when I really got hooked in and became a little more serious. And then I graduated and the project, I got like a high pass and my honors thesis and graduated with uh, high honors and all that stuff, which is, if you think about it, you understand how many 4.0s you have to get after you have a a 1.1, like it, but it really was. You you almost uh, flunked out, like almost got kicked out of school. I was on academic probation. Oh yeah. I mean, everything was almost taken away. I remember having conversations with my parents, like, well, think about the Air Force. Think about, and I was like, oh no. (laughs) <laughs> that, well, no, 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 no. You know, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was a very fragile kind of tightrope at that point. And I think that once you work with people who are established, and they have the confidence in you, uh, you start to believe in yourself, and you start to develop confidence, and then it becomes less of like, an exam or a term paper and more of a genuine interest.
0: Okay, so yeah. now your, your curiosity is lit. And you, you did well on this project. You're graduating. Now you're thinking about graduate school. How do you end up at the University of Washington, which, as you mentioned at the top, is one of the major league places in genome sciences. Debbie Nickerson, Evan Eichler, that whole crew over there, they're, you know, it's, it's Yankees Red Sox yeah.
1: kind of territory. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. And um, I had no idea. I got an oper- I had no idea about uh, Evan Debbie, Jason Dury, Bob Watterson, none of them, not yet. So I got the opportunity though, to have an internship, a summer internship, like a really short three month thing at the Center for Research on Genomics and Global Health, which was a brand new thing with NHGRI. They focused mostly on neglected tropical diseases, um, really, really wild stuff, but they specifically focused on historically marginalized communities. And I interviewed with this gentleman, Dr. Ed Ramos, who worked very closely with one then Senator Barack Obama. And he interviews me and he's like, all right, tell me why you want to work here. And I remember he was like getting a tea and he's like, I have 15 minutes. Why should we hire you kind of thing? And I was like, oh my God. And I had to, I was, I remember I was late because I had to like take the train and I get there and like, I had to go through the security to get onto the NIH campus. And I was like, oh shit, like this is a whole universe. But look at these buildings. Like I didn't even know about building 10 yet. I didn't even know about the culture and the history there and the human genome project. And I guess I somehow convinced him by talking about how I thought it was just weird that there's no human genomics focusing on island people. And he's like, okay, well. You're gonna work on these projects with these people. You ever heard of pharmacogenomics? And I was like, no, what's that? And he's like, look it up. So then, you know, I start getting into uh, that project. Now, Ed worked for the now president of ASHG, Charles Routine. So- ASHG, American Society of Human Genetics. That's correct. And, and Charles, I got to interview with and interact with. So, so my real entry point to human genetics has been with like all women, black and brown leadership up to this point, right? I had no idea that it was not like that. So imagine <laughs> like, you're like, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Um, but all the projects we focused on were around these very specific diseases like podoconiosis in to Ethiopia. And I worked with Fasil Tokola, he was a postdoc. He's now a primary investigator at NIH. And I just had Adeyemo, Adebowale, all these people, Daniel Schreiner, like people that really tuned me up on statistical rigor. Uh, I learned a lot about GWAS. And at some point I was like, hey, can you guys keep me on as a research fellow after the internship? And luckily they did. And it was really fun and productive. And I got to learn a lot. And now NHGRI is a really unique research environment, too. Like we're talking about working for the federal government. There's a profound responsibility in that. There's a lot of productivity, large scale projects. Um, super cool. So now, this, was an
0: inter, this was an interim step, uh, this internship before you uh, go to graduate school. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Because I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what things existed. Now, at that point, they're telling me, they're like, "Okay, you've been here for 18 months. You really need to prioritize either medical school or a Ph.D. program. Which one is it going to be? And so we start looking at all these different programs. Um, You know, you got to take your examinations, GRE or MCATs. Right. And then I started looking at the programs. And one thing that was interesting is we had a lot of advisors. I mean, if you think about the advisors for CRGGH and you look at that year's panel of people on their, on their kind of committee of, 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 you know, board of, of advisors, it was people like Carlos Bustamante, Mary Claire King, Debbie Nickerson, uh, God. Um, big, big names and shit. Yeah. Gary it was like, it was like big, it was like people, I didn't even know who they were. And I'm like, Hey, mind, uh, passing the half and half, you know, like, I don't you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had no idea what was going on, but I did know that a lot of them worked at UW or Stanford. So it really, it really, for me, it came down to like, like, what are people working on? What are the new technologies? And then that's when kind of exome sequencing 2009, it becomes like a thing. And I noticed the people that were involved in it was like Mike Bamshed, Jason burry Debbie Nickerson, Evan Eichler, all of these people that were coming out with the original, um, like the Miller syndrome and the Kabuki syndrome papers that really define the field around these ideas, Now, for those
0: not not super familiar, uh, the exome, this is late aughts, uh, and the genome sequencing technology was getting a lot better, faster, cheaper, and one of the the clever tricks was to sequence the exome, just the 2% or so of the genome that's coding regions for genes, or so we thought at the time, I mean, it's it's changed a little, right? But you know, for you know, a modest amount of money and a, a short uh, amount of time and scan, you can get a lot of information. And so, this is what people were thinking about: like, what can we do with this? We gather all this information. What can we do with it?
1: Yeah, and, and that was a very elegant and very succinct, beautiful way of putting it. And it was revolutionary at the time for prioritizing pathogenic and potentially pathogenic mutations, and that exome sequencing project through the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute was an extremely successful, what I would call, big science agenda. And they not only had this new sequencing method that was developed by Jason Burry and others, but they had this, uh, the way that they prioritized phenotype information that was associated with it. It's like, let's go to the tail ends of this distribution and recruit all the people with the highest LDL and the lowest LDL. And maybe they'll have interesting point mutations that let us learn about these mechanisms. Right. And so I was obsessed with that. And then a postdoc I worked with was like, you ever heard a copy number variation? And I was like, no, what's that? And they were like, well, if you're going to go to UW, you should look up this guy, Evan and look up fragile X syndrome and look up. And I was like, Holy shit. Like I thought that there was only point mutations you know i didn't know that there was this other rhythm or complexity to human genetic variation there's this whole new spectrum it's like if you knew a rainbow existed and you thought it had three colors and now it has 124 you know what i mean yeah um, and i was like i need a part of that so i end up there and i end up with this just tremendous um series of mentors so the people that were on my committee, I mean, I probably wasn't the best student in that department, but I, but if you go through that department and you get a degree, I have tremendous respect for you because it doesn't get much harder, you know, it, it's it, tough. Re, right. It's super rigorous and the expectations and the types of students that they recruit, it's competitive, but it's also, it's also a place of, of love. It's also a place of productivity. They care about their students. And I worked. On mostly exome sequencing data and well, whole genome sequencing data, and I told Debbie, did, did you
0: ever, did you ever have moments of of doubt or despair? Like people, you, you hear about this in graduate school, where people just feel like at some point they're they're hitting the wall. Mm. They wonder if they're going
1: to make it. You know, yes, but no. I mean, I was determined. After you sink your teeth into something and you understand how much of a huge opportunity it is. It's like, I've done a lot of physical labor in my life, like construction and all kinds of other jobs, you know? Uh, so I always had this mindset. It's like, it's not like it's coal mining, you know, there are worse jobs. This is a tremendous opportunity is what I would tell myself. And I was surrounded by so many really, really capable people from different walks of life and yeah. Yeah. So it was a supportive
0: environment. I, I kind of interrupted. You were saying that there there was a place of love, and these these advisors helped you like become the kind of scientist you wanted to become.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when you can just walk into Phil Green's office and ask him about how an assembly works, or how does, you know, um, just just like a hidden Markov model work. Or, you know, these are things that if you think about it, I had really no experience with, and then we had to have serious conversations about how algorithm development works and what our data structures and There's no better place to learn those things, in my opinion. It's just such a unique confluence of expertise. And that's why you have have companies that come out of there like amazon.com, Microsoft and other things and I think it's a very unique environment for bioinformatics. Um and the people that were on my committee were tremendous. I mean like like I I even now I, I think about it and like what a what a privilege and an honor.
0: Now I looked at your uh, your PhD work and the paper on it. Uh, is that something that you was that really important or instructive in putting you on the path you're on now?
1: Absolutely. I remember going into work and I told Debbie Nickerson and Evan Eichler and I was like, I want to work on any project that comes in here that has to work with minority health. That is what I want to do. And that's exactly what we did. Every single project, whether it was looking at Mexican-American trios and families for genes involved in autism spectrum disorder or discovering new abo alleles and individuals that literally had the vast majority of their abo gene deleted in sub-saharan african communities that's everything i did there every single project was oriented towards minority health
0: now i think i have an idea but why was this important to you why why did you insist on making that your Mm. focus
1: so great question (laughs) um so when i joined there were kind of like two things that happened that really lit a fire under my ass. One of them was a piece that came out with from Carlos Bustamante and Esteban Richard called genomics for the world and it was like a comment piece in nature short and it had this pie chart and the pie chart showed that 96 percent of GWAS exclusively featured individuals of western european ancestry and i was 96%. over 96
0: percent
1: that's, that leaves just the tiniest sliver in a pie chart. 96%. And I didn't fully understand what that meant and how that like reinforces and reproduces bias and everything that we do yet. You know, I just knew that there were zero Hawaiians probably in there and there were zero people from Samoa. There were zero people, you know, and from my point of view, I was like, man, I know that the average lifespan of Native Hawaiian people is much lower than other people who live in Hawaii for context, right?
0: Yeah. And
1: I know that Hawaii has the longest life expectancy of any state in in America. Or it's usually in the top two, it's like Hawaii and Massachusetts or something. And I was like, so why is it that our people are dying a full decade earlier? And why is it that we see the potential of predictive, preventative, participatory, personalized medicine to take a few words from Lee Hood? And we're not including these populations in the future? that seems wrong. That seems like ethically wrong. Then I learned about clinical trials and we're seeing the same kind of trend, this trend of not including minority people in, in clinical trials. So we're developing all these drugs and it's just kind of like exacerbating this brave new world, health disparities. So that was, that was one thing. And then the thousand genomes project came out and I was like, okay, this isn't GWAS data. This is, this is human genome full full you know whole genome sequence and again there were no polynesian people included and so i was like okay like there's a clear need for this and there's a clear lane that's wide open for the development of my career and i'm going to do this no matter what and i'm going to focus on getting the tools i need to get to that next position
0: Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP-certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, Support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook, Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman. And Thermo Fisher Scientific. I had seen you several times before in textbooks. But seeing you with my own eyes was a whole different story. You were breathtaking. This is an excerpt from a love letter written by Marietta to her cells. One of several incredible love letters written by amazing research scientists to give us a glimpse into the wonderment, the beauty, and the challenges of cell research. Join us as we continue this exploration of a connection like no other, part of the Love Your Cells campaign. Watch Marietta read her incredible love letter at... ThermoFisher.com slash Gibco Love Yourselves. I'll say it again. ThermoFisher.com slash Gibco Love Yourselves. All one word. So this really is a confluence. This brings together your, your, your upbringing, your community, the culture that you're familiar with, with now your scientific and technical training. You can bring these two threads together to address this wide open lane, I think, as you put it. Uh, there, because if, okay, so, but to ask a very basic and dumb question, why is it important that we not gather all this data from 90% uh, white people? Uh, as we As we collect all this genetic information, why is it important that it be a diverse pool to draw from?
1: So that's a, that's a great question. So when we, when we actually think about that and we say, okay, why is this a problem? I think it comes down to the way that we create systematic bias. So if we think about the development or training of any algorithm, if you train that algorithm with specific data sets that don't include variation, that comes from, let's say the native Hawaiian community, then you're not gonna be able to predict adverse effects for the deployment of drugs. So I'll give you two kind of key examples. One is metformin. Metformin is a drug that's usually given to people that have type two diabetes, which is extremely high, if not the highest amongst Pacific Islander communities. However, a recent study in the Maori community of Polynesian ancestry showed that 30% of those people, uh, the drug efficacy of metformin, it, it doesn't work, okay? Another example is Plavix or Clopidogrel. Um, and that was kind of a very, very famous kind of uh, disaster that, that happened um, recently and showed that this drug kind of exacerbates, uh, you know, Potentially fatal outcomes when taking the drug. So, there are a lot of things going on. We know that population specific mutations exist. We know that a lot of them are in coding regions. We know also that copy number variation, there's population predilection for that as well. And we need to define it so that we can design the next generation of treatments around that. Um, And this is really important because it can definitely lead to a path forward for predictive and preventative medicine. We're we're missing things.
0: We're, we're missing a lot. Uh, and it's not just, you know, the the occasional side effect on a drug. It's it's other positive traits that might be uh, that might be there in native populations that you know we never even thought to look for. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's kind of the other uh, side of the coin. Evan published, Evan Eichler published this paper recently showing that they identified new human genes, uh, new human genes with functions after they created a Melanesian population-specific genome reference using long-read technology from from PacBio. So that kind of leads you to a whole new direction. It's like, we don't even know what's out there. So when that new paper came out and they said that they completed the human genome i was like okay whose human genome did you complete that wasn't a conversation and i think the new york times and everybody else on that media beat kind of missed that you know they missed that 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 direction um but to your point we're focusing on health disparity but what about the things that make us extraordinary what about mutations in epas one what about the crebrf mutation that's discovered in polynesia that looks like it predisposes to obesity, but protects against type 2 diabetes, what else is out there that can be used to understand disease mechanism, but we might be able to create proxies for therapy-wise to reduce health disparities broadly and globally, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and people know, I mean, I, uh, I trusted my life to members of the Sherpa tribe in Nepal from Tibet and they are famously adapted to high altitude that, um, that, that is still an area of, of really rich investigation, figuring out what's, what's happened in, you know, hundreds of generations there that that's given them, um, a special ability. Can we learn from that? Are there some, some therapeutic benefits perhaps,
1: yeah, I, I, uh, I think this is going to be a very, very, very rich uh, avenue for research into the next few decades and identifying population specific mutations that are gifts of natural selection. These are, you know, many indigenous communities. This is the product of their migratory history and their diaspora and their custodianship and guardianship of of land and biodiversity and the way it shaped their genomes over time. And it is one of the most exciting and fulfilling and empowering parts of what we do.
0: Okay, so let, let, let's come back to you for a second. You, you get mm-hmm. your, your PhD from, you, you've made it uh, through this uh, uh, rigorous process of getting, you know, the, the, the PhD in genome sciences at the University of Washington. And then what do you do? Are you thinking about a faculty job, like looking around or maybe go to industry? What what was your next move?
1: Oh, man, my next move was that I fell in love. So wherever (laughs) my partner went, I was going there. She could have went to the moon, you know, and I was going to make my research program work wherever that was. And she got a tremendous opportunity at UCSD. Uh, an excellent financial package. Um, She was the reason I came here. It's also a huge um, Islander community here in Southern California in the San Diego area. And they have great surfing and amazing Mexican food. And uh, I gotta be honest, it's, it's a lovely place to live. And it's also a thriving ecosystem for genomic innovation.
0: Lots to like about San Diego. Um, so, so you're um, were you married at this time?
1: No, no, I wasn't. But, but, uh, but I knew I was going to follow the love of my life wherever wherever she was going. And turns out it was a good decision. And uh, I end up working with two amazing people, and I got a presidential postdoc fellowship, which is like one of these kind of fast track to um, to fa- a faculty position.
0: Okay, so you're not exactly a, a trailing spouse, but, you know, she's got the job. They <laughs> yeah. they, they they definitely want her. And mm-hmm. th- at some point you get introduced, they're like, who is this guy? Oh, you know, and and, and by this point, you know, <laughs> I think you look pretty interesting to them. They, they got a lot of genomics capability there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I end up working with two incredible people. One of them is Allison Mutri, who is... He's awesome uh, Brazilian super one of the most creative people I've ever met um, always champions wild ideas and a new professor in the chemistry department, Alexis Comor who had just developed base editing and she was looking for postdocs and I my situation was kind of financially taken care of so I wanted to work on some wild stuff. and the idea was actually inspired by kind of conversations I would have with, um, old school people at, at UW, which was Maynard Olson and others, and kind of getting exposed to this paper from Richard Lewontin and Stephen Jay Gould from the seventies. And it was the spandrels, uh, just so paper. And for those that don't understand, it was kind of accusing the field of human genetics of moving towards this idea of rampant adaptionism. So, kind of narrativizing every single mutation and not fully sussing it out in terms of what its functional purpose was. So just taking anything that's correlation-based and not assessing the the causative effect on the mechanistic level. And luckily for us, CRISPR-Cas9 had just allowed us to reverse engineer population-specific mutations in physiologically relevant cell lines, and so we set out to develop a number of those projects.
0: Okay, okay, you've got to, uh, you know, again, tools. I keep mm-hmm. coming back to this all the time: tools and what they enable you to ask and answer uh, fast, cheap. Uh, you can really move ahead, uh, and and uh, so you're a presidential postdoc now, uh, and this is sort of like your your dry run for a, a faculty position, whether it be there or or elsewhere although it sounds like you've really kind of wanted to stay in san diego
1: yeah and and for the proposal that we put in for the presidential postdoc it was about functionalizing neanderthal specific mutations so it wasn't even about human population specific it was about saying okay if i run an analysis and i say what mutations exist in human beings like the thousand genomes and what mutations exist in Neanderthals, and then what's the overlap, what's private to humans, what's introgressed, and then what's private to a Neanderthal, then what do those mutations that only exist in archaic genomes do? Because those are far more interesting from the point of view of why we're here and they're not. Uh, And so we started asking those questions and saying, okay, if we design guide RNA for those locations, and then, you know, basically base edit them into cell lines, and then functionally assess what they do. Um, that's pretty cool. That's a whole new field. That's functionalizing archaic specific mutations. Nobody's yeah. doing that. So and Allison, base
0: editing, base editing was the right tool here because you can go at the level of a single nucleotide. I mean, very precise.
1: Very precise, very cheap, very reproducible. And we happen to have the leading person in the world doing that. And so, man, and I learned so much working with her, even now, I mean, you know, writing her emails and, and, and whatnot. But, but I, think that, I think that when you get to work with somebody that's just establishing their lab, it's really important because if every time you enter a research environment, it's already set up and you don't know how to start from zero. So that was really valuable because I got to see her put everything into it, you know, and it was so inspiring. Uh, What a tenacious and intrepid and super smart person. But also, you know, you get to see the growing pains of building something from the ground up.
0: Well, starting an academic lab, I mean, people often make the analogy is it's like uh, an act of entrepreneurship. It's like starting a little company. You, you got to, you know, order your supplies, know where, you know, how to how to do things with the bureaucracy, hire good people, <laughs> figure yeah. out what you're going to do and not do.
1: Yes, 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 yes. And yes. And so it gives you like a, a it gave me a window as a person who's a postdoc that was, is going to become was going to become an assistant professor. Like, how does that work? You know, is what is the vast majority of your new role. Your new role is mostly communication of ideas, right? You have to separate yourself from, from, you know, applying the tools and being more of the architect. You're laying less bricks and worrying more about the blueprint. And and I don't think that enough young people understand that. They mostly get thrust into it, but they don't see it. They don't understand that 75% of your day is writing emails or having to deal with, with some, uh, you know, some type of financial situation or, right? The, the, yep. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, this yeah. is, uh, this reminds me coming back to my book on Lee Hood, you know, because yeah. he, he really mastered that scientific entrepreneurship at mm-hmm. an early, I mean, even before he really thought of himself as an entrepreneur, it was at Caltech, but uh, part of this too is having good taste and you know in the projects that you choose to work on because a lot of what happens in academia I mean it it, it might move the field forward a little bit but it's it's self interest to you know 10 people uh, yeah. and, and and maybe it never gets read by more than 10 or cited and it's kind of forgotten but you I mean part of what why I really wanted to have you on here today mm-hmm. is like I look at this this interdisciplinary mix of things now uh, and, and on your, uh, on your webpage, which I'm sure you, you know, spend some time polishing up and it look good. <laughs> you yeah. got genome sequencing, genome engineering, computational biology, evolutionary genetics, paleogenetics, and indigenizing biomedical research. You're pulling together threads from genome sciences. And I think you're affiliated with, uh, anthropology and like other, I mean, you you've got your, um your your focus here is on uh like a nexus of great scientific
1: curiosity and social need. Mm. So cool. Yeah, thank thank you. I, I, honestly, I I uh there's this um and not to like pat you on the back, but there's this part in your book in the uh, the Leho the Trailblazer and you and there's there's a introduction or at some point there's a quote from um grandpa maynard and it's about it's about the three types of scientific questions and that always sat with me i was like what is this project and where does it fall into this is this an informational question is it a mechanistic question or is this a new tool and that that is honestly like i tell that to my students now i'm like what is this one of three Choose, please." And that's, really, yeah, that has been like in my decision-making process and the consensus building that I do when we choose projects, it's, they always have to orient themselves in that way. And yeah, they turn out to be multidisciplinary because that's where we apply things and then we, and then we can name them, whatever, but it always comes down to the, the, the question and the root of the question. For me, you
0: you mentioned Grandpa Maynard. That's Maynard Olson of yeah. University of Washington, and I I don't know if he said exactly that in my book, but I do, now that you mention it, as I recall, his quote was something along the lines of, you know, coming out of Watson Crick, biology uh, was super focused on mechanisms, yeah, uh, and less so on information. Uh, the informational aspect that that naturally sprang out of the Watson-Crick discovery mm-hmm. and Hood was one of those early movers who really like channeled that information branch. Let's mm-hmm. let's generate the information. Let's analyze that information. He was like a big data guy before people talked about big data in
1: biology. He yeah, he, he 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 created the field, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this is. So now you come along uh, a couple of generations later, and like now you've, you're seeing down the barrel of this this problem with health disparities and lack of access to the sequencing. Uh, you know the the gap in our knowledge that this uh, threatens to uh, widen or mm. perpetuate, uh, and you're sitting here saying maybe I can narrow that gap, and 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 keep us from perpetuating some of these biases
1: absolutely i I think it's all uh dialectically intertwined as well one thing that lee hood did that i thought was super genius is that he was a tool maker and if you make tools people will use them And if they use your tool they reference your thing and you can build a house but if i made the hammer you're always going to be thankful for the hammer so Uh, that, That really sat with me too. So I'll give you some examples about like new fields where there's a need to develop tools and solutions. So generally when people talk about this interface between like genomics and ethical and social kind of issues and priorities, there's always like let's say we put out a framework paper with Katrina Claw and Nanaba Garrison, and it's been cited a lot and it will be considered to be cited a lot. But does that mean that it actually changes people's behavior about the way they make consensus about involving indigenous people in genome studies? Or does it mean that they just reference our paper and it's sort of like uh, tinseling or window dressing and they're gonna continue to do the same unethical things? That frustrated me as well. So I said, you know what we're gonna do is we're gonna create solutions. So what's a solution? Well, let's start talking about deterrent technologies. Let's start talking about counter technologies. Let's talk about safeguarding indigenous genomics because if you want indigenous people to have more buy-in, right, you have to give them agency. So what does that mean? It means that everybody that has agency has vertical control of stacks of technologies. So how do you build that for people? How do you, how do you build that for communities? If a community this is not
0: just an exploitive relationship where I show right. up, I give a blood mm-hmm. sample or a tissue sample and some guy right. takes it into the back and I never see or hear of it again until 50 years later, I find out, you know, somebody made some money off of it or, right. <laughs> or, or they
1: never bothered to like ship me that wonder drug. Right? right. Exactly. Luke. And I think like what we're starting to realize is that by creating the democratization of, of, of tools and technological independence, that's the path forward for more equitable partnerships and relationships. That's how we dissect the power imbalances that exist. Don't just say you're building capacity by giving somebody a scholarship to MIT, build them a genome center, build them a computational infrastructure, explain how things work. Uh, and that, that, uh, that is something that we're not just saying what we're doing. We, I'm a co-founder of the Native uh, Biodata Consortium where we built the first genome center on, res- on a reservation. We created Sing, we created Indigidata where we're training the next generation of indigenous data scientists to prioritize things. We created the Indigenous Futures Institute at UCSD to intentionally recombine the disparate elements that are traditional indigenous knowledge and emerging technologies to create new alloys that represent our future.
0: So who owns this data and has access to it?
1: Great question. Great question. A lot of that will be contextual to the individual community. Uh, depending on that situation. And I think that we've been exploring a lot of different models around data ownership and indigenous data sovereignty. We've literally written the book on that. And um, and we're just getting started.
0: Well, and I know that you're an advisor to uh, Variant Bio here in Seattle. Andrew Farnham's a previous guest on the show, uh, mm-hmm. longtime uh, ex- uh, investor at the Gates Foundation. So he's thought long and hard about uh, how to structure... I don't know what the term is, but, you know, really mutually beneficial relationships where if we're going to go and sequence, an indigenous community, uh, that data will be not just dropping down my rabbit hole and sold off to a big pharma company, your scientists, your community will have access to it. And guess what, if we develop any, you know, effective new drugs that are either effective for your community or for the whole world, you will have access and you'll have access at a price you can pay.
1: Yes, yes. And I think that when we really start to assess uh, what's going on and we make these apt parallels with data, and we say, okay, if I begin to think about data as a resource, and I say data is the number one resource on planet earth, it is no different than rare earth minerals, it is no different than timber it is no different than oil in fact it surpassed oil in 2018 as the number one commodity on planet earth and we alert and educate communities around that idea and that parallel it changes everything then you think about some of the programs and partnerships that we've implemented with variant bio for example they have been wildly successful because they are completely disruptive to the status quo. For example, if you know that 23andMe is selling your data to GSK for $300 million, and that's documented, and you also know that Ancestry gets sold for 4.7 billion, uh, you see the, the, the not just the value of it, but the increasing or exponential value of genomic data, which fits neatly into this big data sort of surveillance economy, which is why Facebook is Facebook and Google is Google and Amazon is Amazon. So if you know that, and you know that you can partition off a larger part of the pie to the communities that are graciously allowing you to analyze their genomes, then why not do that? It's more sustainable culturally it allows us to build circular economic structures off of that IP and off of those royalties. And that, that's true equity. This could actually help indigenous communities buy back their land. This can help build schools. This can help build hospitals. This can really help uh, revitalize uh, diversity in the truest sense. So I think, I think more companies will be forced to adopt this model. And I love being a first mover. Just like, you know, you know, I love, I love just, just disrupting the whole industry and changing the status quo. And I will not stop doing that until I die. (laughs) It's a, it's a
0: different business model. Uh, And whenever you try something like that, you know, there's going to be people in, in the existing power who don't like it. They like things the way they are. Um, They... They might hear you like on uh, yeah. half of their ear uh, and hear your point, but they're not doing much. So I want to bring up a couple people here that I, mm-hmm. I know you wrote an article in New England Journal of Medicine with the um, <laughs> somewhat incendiary headline, "The Illusion of Inclusion." And you, elucidate, you know elucidated some reasons why the All of Us research program for the NIH wasn't quite where it needs to be. Mm. Uh, and, um, and I think there was a reference to 23 and me in there as well. So what were you trying to get across in that paper?
1: So the reason the title is the illusion of inclusion is because the, the, all of us program for those who are are not familiar, is a large scale government initiative, multi-billion dollar initiative that we are paying for with our hard earned tax paying dollars to recruit 1 million people into a very large study. Uh, and The reason why it's the illusion of inclusion is because there is a a priority to have at least 50% of that data set be from indigenous people, brown people, historically marginalized communities within the United States of America, which at face value is a good thing, as we discussed kind of previously. If this is going to lead to, to, you know, a a more equitable path forward for precision medicine, then that's a good thing. I think we can all agree. on that that right? sounds
0: good. That that sounds like it's you know uh, designed to mirror the population at large, or is pretty close,
1: right? We we want data sets in this country to reflect the diversity that we see every day walking down the street, and I think that at face value that is a really noble goal. However, when we talk about the value of these data sets and what happens to them. And what people's agency are, especially as indigenous people, if you're part of a federally recognized uh, indigenous community, like the Navajo Nation, for example, then you have a vested interest in understanding that your data is a resource and might be used to accelerate or fast track or expedite the development of pharmaceutical drugs. Regeneron, for example, is very interested in doing this there. They've already thought about stacking the deck for genetic diversity in, you know, geographically sequestered populations, because they know they're going to find mutations that are population specific that might allow for them to uh, expedite R&D. And once it's a genetic treasure trove, it's absolutely a genetic treasure trove. And this is quite obvious to those of us that have been in the field of population genetics for some time. Now, I want to contrast like my position and understanding things a decade ago to where I am now. We're starting to see the emergence of the value of this data. And so we have to have that conversation because if it's just going to get driven over the goal line by big pharma and it's not and they're going to create drugs that hit the market and they're like $300,000 a year, uh, for example, uh, Vertex looking at you. Uh, That can't happen. That's actually a violation of the common rule. We should not be developing drugs that are not accessible for communities of people that need them the most. In my opinion, that is deplorable. And that is not what being an American is about. That is not what equity is about. And that is literally a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. So we need to reassess where things are going. And at this point, we need to educate people on the potential use and misuse of genetic information. And so that's what I tried to do with that New England Journal piece. I think that I provided solutions, right? I wasn't just critical of the dynamics and relationships that are going on. And there's a lot of conflict of no, interest that are going no, on. No, you
0: were not just throwing bombs at people or trying to score points. You were constructive. And I actually saw there was a reply from someone at the NIH uh, who basically said, you know, Dr. Fox, we, um, we read your article, we hear you, and we're, we're working on it. Well, what kind of feedback did you get?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the feedback that I got was very positive because we situated ourselves around solutions and, and, and the idea of saying, listen, we have to have conversations about benefit sharing. We have to have legitimate conversations about how this data And the development of drugs in the future and these new forms of innovation are going to impact people's lives. If you think about the development and the paradigm shift in all of these new technologies, mRNA technology and what Moderna, for example, has been able to do, the writing is on the wall. The more we learn about human genetic variation, the more we can deploy it through new new mechanisms. And there's going to be a lot of money that's made. And so we need to situate communities so that they can receive portions of that intellectual property because that's how they can rebuild, you know, back to this circular economic structure idea. Uh, so I think from a lot of people have really, really liked the piece. Um, so this
0: is still this is still pretty early in your faculty career, though. I mean, I don't see too many people criticizing a big branch of the NIH when they're an early career investigator. That took some that took some balls.
1: Yeah, yeah, I uh, I was a little nervous. Um, I still haven't had had the opportunity and and the honor of having a conversation with Francis Collins. And so, if you're listening. Um, El Presidente director, I'd love to talk to you one on one about this and think about ways that we can actually create new solutions and kind of embed them within this, this large data set.
0: How, now I did mention that you're still kind of, you know, getting your, your research career and agenda set. It's been a hard year pandemic wise. Um, How have,
1: how have you been able to manage? Uh, Honestly, I have initially, I mean, there are always ups and downs, but I absolutely love what I do. And I've had a very successful um, first few years as a a professor, I got recommended for accelerated tenure, I am um, very, very fortunate and privileged to have this opportunity. So I'm just, you know, operating at as, as high of a level as I can. And I really just, I appreciate it. I appreciate my colleagues. I appreciate the communities that participate in our studies, most of all. And it's, and we're just getting started. So,
0: so when this, uh, thing is behind us and everybody can come back in the lab and it's sort of like, you know, uh, academic work as usual, uh, what do you want to do, uh, first and, and, and then where do you think, this is really going to go for you long-term. I mean, it's hard. It's science. You never know <laughs> quite say for sure, but long-term goals.
1: Yeah. Long, long-term goals are just getting our right now, you know, getting this indigenous futures Institute um, all online and situated. We'll be having a, an indigenous futures residency program where we're going to kind of bring together experts from around the world uh, for, targeted focus on things like indigenous data sovereignty energy sovereignty uh rural health things like this and i'm just excited about getting that program going growing the lab recruiting students um i have another graduate student coming and we're very excited to have her on board and growing the lab um in that sense really Focusing and continuing to develop the projects that we have going develop the grants that we already have moving really dig into the data and there are some new kind of specific projects and questions that are really interesting. And uh, we have a micro grant program that we're going to be doing through the Indigenous Futures Institute. So if anyone has projects that are oriented towards this then please apply. So we're looking forward to giving out money too. Um, and just kind of, you know, seeing what kind of projects come through there and recruiting people into, into these, these new programs. So, you
0: know, hearing you describe this work, uh, it sounds like, you you know, you mentioned earlier, communicating ideas is a big part of what a faculty member does. And you're actually able to do that. You're, you're able to crystallize these concepts and execute on them. Uh, and and uh, and build relationships with partnerships that you need to exit to pull this stuff off so um, I, I can imagine a scenario where you can just like hit the ground running and get right back into it when everybody's back
1: yeah uh, yeah absolutely I mean we have uh broad community partnerships as well. Um, One thing that's been cool this summer is it has opened up a little bit. So we've been able to be on the ground level with a lot of our community partners and just develop projects and break bread and, and talk about the future and what people want and what community members kind of scientific priorities are. And that's always a lovely way to ground yourself and center the new trajectory of projects. I think that's really important. I challenge my colleagues, to do the same. Uh, because if you're sequencing people's genomes and you've not been to the place where you're extracting information, then maybe you need to really think about what that means.
0: Kyolo Fox, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Aloha.
1: Aloha. Uh, Mahalo nui, Luke. It's such a true pleasure to be here. Everybody loves your work and the tremendous dedication to amazing journalism and this focus so again mahalo nui for everything and see you around Ahui Ho.
0: thanks for listening to the long run a production of timberman report pedro rosado of head stepper media was the sound editor music is from da wallach see you next episode